great to have you in the house this morning. We are so excited about the next few weeks and months around here at Lake Hills Church and are excited that you're a part of what God is doing. Uh, it was about 15 years ago that a very close friend of mine invited me to go bone fishing in the Bahamas. I had never done this before. I'd never fished with a fly rod and he kind of explained to me the intricacies of how this is done and so I got to work practicing here in Austin before taking this trip a few months out. And, and to be totally candid with you, as I was practicing in the front yard with, with no fish, no water, in particular no wind, I, I'm not bragging, but I'm just telling you, I got really good. I, I mean, I was killing it in the backyard. I mean, I was putting it like on a dinner plate, just I had been in the Bahamas for about 30 minutes when I discovered the painful reality that my backyard in Austin was far different from a bonefish flat in Andros. Far, far different. Because if you've ever fished there, if you've ever even been to the beach, you know that wind is kind of a constant when you're at the beach and on the ocean. And so my first few hours of bonefishing in the Bahamas were just completely fraught with frustration. I, I would get I'd get the fly up in the air, and then as I got frustrated, I'd try to do more, and I was more, you know, just not controlled, and, and I just had, you know, fly line falling in my feet in a pile of spaghetti, and every now and then the fly would zing past my head and wrap around the tip of the fly rod, and a couple of times it was like, wink, pink, hit me in the back of the head. It was just, it was just awful, and my, my Bahamian fishing guide was getting more and more frustrated as the morning went on. He was like, oh, come on, man, you got to do better than that. <laughs> he said, man, you got to just relax, just relax. Just, it's an easy motion, man, just, to, just let it go. And, and he would take the right, he goes, watch what I do, man. And he'd go, bing, bing. I was like, man, that's so easy. And then I'd pick it up and I'd go, bing, bloop. <laughs> and we'd been out on the flats for a few hours. We had had lunch. Nothing caught. We finished lunch and began wading the flats again. And all of a sudden, my guide kind of crouched down. He went, okay, man, this is it. Here they come. Do you see them coming? And even I could see these fish coming from what felt like a mile away, a squadron of bonefish flying through the water, like literally a half acre of fish. I thought, man, if I could just like drop the fly here and back up and just let them swim to it, they could take it. And my guy said, no, 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 man. He goes, you get that fly up in the air. You just put it out there, 30 feet, man. 30 feet, that's all I'm asking. Put it out there. And I went, oh, 30 feet, sure, I want a dunk too. But anyway, so I, it went about 12 feet, 15. He goes, leave it, leave it, man. Just leave it there, they're coming. Don't move it. And so I, I crouched down with him like I knew what I was doing. I was like, okay. And he goes, okay, here they come. Strip, 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 strip. He ate it, man. He ate it. You did it. You fed the bullfish, man. Set the hook. And I, <laughs> I set the hook. And if you've never seen a bonefish take a fly, it is a thing of beauty. They're just a little muscle in the water. And so when they get hooked, they take off screaming across the flat. My fly line is rooster tailing in the water. And my guide begins worshiping there on the flats. He goes, oh, Jesus, he did it. He caught the fish. <laughs> Jesus, thank you, my Lord and my God. You did it, man. You caught the bonefish. And 
when I caught the bonefish, I did what any seasoned angler would do. I, you know, cleared my line and, and let it run through my fingers and it got back on the reel. And then I took the rod and the, took the butt of the rod and put it in my belly button and I giggled like a little girl for about 15 minutes. It was the most fun I have ever had on the water. Unbelievable. Now some of you, as I tell that story, you're thinking to yourself right now, why bother? I mean, is a bonefish really that good to eat? I don't know how to break it to you. You don't even eat a bonefish. It's named very deliberately. There are scientifically 18 squillion bones in every single bonefish. You're not going to eat a bonefish. It's catch and release, baby. But there on that flat that day, I learned some critical, critical life lessons. First of all, if you're going to catch them, you've got to be amongst them. If you're going to catch them, you've got to be amongst them. Second of all, I learned that, and since then I've learned that the only way to get good, if you want to really learn how to fish, the only way to do it is time. Specifically, T-O-W, time on the water. You have got to put in the time and pay the dues and learn how to spot the fish, present the fly, set the hook, clear the line. It takes T-O-W. A third lesson that I learned on the flat is that if you want to fish, and I mean really fish, I'm not talking about a hobby, but I'm talking about a passion. If you want to really fish, it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you time. It's going to cost you money to get there. You're going to invest some of your soul in fishing if you're really going to do it. But the fourth thing that I learned when that and when I tell you the fish that took my fly that first time, I mean, it was a little peanut. It was T90, the smallest fish in the whole squadron, the whole school, swam over and took it, and the fly was bigger than the fish. And but I was so happy. But here's what I learned. When that fly, when that fish took that fly, all of the, the angst and the frustration that I had experienced as, as I got to that moment, all of the time that I had put in both in Austin, in the laboratory, and in reality on the flat, all of the money that I had spent to take this trip, all of it at that moment was absolutely 1,000 darn percent worth it. Everybody pick up three fingers real quick for me. Some of you have been around, you know that we do this around here. This is not just three fingers, this is the W, and we just kind of go, it's worth it. So throw that W. When you hook a fish, you discover that it is absolutely worth it. It's worth the bother. It's worth the time. It's worth the expense. Now, Jesus told his very first followers, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That's kind of a well-known statement, a well-known challenge, if you will. And we know, of course, that he was speaking not to pastime fishermen, not to hobby fishermen. Jesus was speaking to professional fishermen, commercial fishermen whose families depended upon their ability to catch fish for their livelihood. No matter the wind, no matter the waves, no matter the tides, no matter the conditions, if they don't catch fish, their families don't eat. 
Because you see, Jesus understood that when you look at something as a livelihood, it's much different than a hobby. It's much different than a pastime. And for us as a church, today we're, we're three weeks away from Easter, from, from celebrating the central fact of our faith, the anchor point for the faith of Christianity. The reality that the tomb of Jesus Christ is empty, that he rose from the grave. And all of the implications that come from that are wrapped up in that reality. But we're also today a little under six weeks away from a monster opportunity that all of us have a stake in. On Friday, April the 15th, you and I as a church family are hosting the Spur Leadership Conference. And this is something that affects all of us. No matter what your influence, your sphere might be, we all have a stake in this. Whether your influence is in the marketplace or in the home place or at school or where you work out or in your neighborhood, we all have a role to play in influencing this world and the people around us. And so what I want to do is just very, very quickly share with you a brief video to kind of make sure we're all on the same page to explain Spur leadership in general, but also the conference in particular and what it's all about. Check this out. What if people went to work every day from a position of purpose and power instead of obligation and burden? What if we could create cultures of trust and relationship as well as satisfying the bottom line. Spur Leadership exists out of the passionate belief that all of these things are not only possible, but they're also the responsibility of every single leader, of every single team member, to make this dream a reality. I'm Mac Richard, and I want to invite you to the Spur Leadership Conference, April the 15th, 2016. We have collected a carefully curated slate of speakers that will absolutely rock the way you do business every day. This year's speakers include Clint Bruce. Clint is a former NFL player, Naval Academy graduate, and a retired Navy SEAL, as well as an entrepreneur and business owner, as the founder of the Trident Response Group. Johnita Jones, in addition to being a 30-year veteran of ExxonMobil, where she is responsible for pipeline risk and integrity, she is the president of the Texas Women's Conference. Back this year, our good friend, Roy Spence. Roy is one of the founders of GSDNM Advertising here in Austin, and for the last 40 years has worked with such powerful brands as Southwest Airlines, the United States Air Force, and BMW. And it's out of that vast experience that Roy and his team created the Purpose Institute, designed to help leaders and organizations build their business and their brand around a genuine purpose that transcends merely making money. Also this year, Buzz Williams. Buzz is currently the head coach of Virginia Tech men's basketball, but he is about much more than X's and O's. Buzz Williams is about equipping young men for life beyond the court. Also this year, we're welcoming Rich Fronig Jr., four-time fittest man in the world as the champion of the CrossFit Games. And when he was done competing as an individual competitor, Rich led his team to win at last year's CrossFit Games. 
Rich is going to join us for a very unique, candid conversation about discipline and pain in the pursuit of excellence. I think you can tell from the slate of this year's speakers that the Spur Leadership Conference is not about theory. It's not about ideals. The Spur Leadership Conference is about real world, practical handles to help you no matter what you do and no matter where you are in your organization or your family. Our goal, our target is that the Spur Leadership Conference will help you, will help your team, that we will challenge you, that we will encourage you, that we will provoke you to do work that matters. Go to SpurLeadership.com and get registered for yourself and your team today. So this is what the conference is all about. You can tell it's not a church service. We're not going to sing praise songs at the conference. There won't even be an offering taken or a sermon given per se, but it's an opportunity to give people real-world handles that they can use in order to open up conversations that point them toward Christ. If you want to understand spur leadership, think mobile loaves and fishes for just a second. Mobile loaves and fishes is kind of intuitive. We understand that we feed people who are chronically hungry because Jesus commands us to care for the poor. And so we do that regardless of whether or not they ever come to a worship service. The vast majority of them never will. But spur leadership is the peanut butter and jelly sandwich or the hard-boiled egg for people who can already buy their own food. This is something we can give them. We can serve them and equip them to do better at work, to do better at home with the hopes that that opens up a conversation about ultimately stepping into a relationship with Christ. But with spur leadership and mobile loaves and fishes and really everything that we do as a church, everything that we do as followers of Jesus beg a really profound question. Everything, whether it's those things or, you know, reading the Bible and learning how to live it out or going to church or praying or tithing or being a, a good guy or being kind to people when we don't feel like it. All of these things beg that really big question, why bother? Why bother doing this stuff if our salvation is sealed, if our future is guaranteed, if, if everything has been taken care of in our relationship with Christ. And I think the answer is the same answer that I discovered that when you treat something as a livelihood, you treat it differently than as a hobby or as a, as a pastime. And so over the next few weeks as we prepare our church, as we prepare ourselves and our hearts for Easter and celebrating and commemorating and committing our lives anew to the reality of Easter, we're going to look at this question, why bother? Why, why go through this? Why go to the trouble? Why make the effort to fish, to, to do all of these things that Jesus commanded us? And to get at this, we're going to use just a very, very small section of Scripture. It's in Matthew chapter 28. If you've got your Bible, go to Matthew. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, the first of the four Gospels, the story of Jesus that's recorded by Matthew and then a different one by Mark and then another one by Luke and another one by John. They have different perspectives, but they're all pointing towards the story of Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus is in a meeting 
He's, he's having a conversation with his closest followers that will be the last conversation in person they have before he returns to heaven. This is, a, this is 40 days after his resurrection, 40 days where he appeared to over 500 eyewitnesses documented and registered. And at this meeting, in this conversation with his closest followers, he's issuing kind of what's known as the Great Commission. This is the final charge, if you will, to those that have been closest to him, those that have followed him and walked with him. They abandoned him during his hour of need in his crucifixion, but they've come back to him and, and they've rallied around him now. And it is they who will carry on his work in his physical absence. But before he returns to heaven, he issues and utters this challenge to them. And, and by the way, by extension, to anyone since then who has chosen to respond to his grace initiative and to follow him. This is what Jesus said. I want you to particularly notice the, the highlighted words. Jesus said, therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I love that last statement that he makes to them. He says, be sure of this. I'm giving you a massive assignment, but make sure that you understand you're not alone. I am with you always. Tell your neighbor right now with passion and conviction and enthusiasm like you mean it, be sure. Thank you very much. There was a child leading the way up there. That was awesome. But it's so important that we understand what's at stake here. Now, next weekend, we're going to focus on that word disciple because he says, go and make disciples. And I think we, we don't always remember or have a clear understanding of what that is. But this weekend, we want to get at the, the why behind it to kind of establish the baseline. I think if you, if you remember the why, then that helps us to carry out the what when it gets hard, when it gets challenging, when the, when the waves crash over, when the wind shifts direction. And we remember, oh yeah, that's, that's why. Why bother? Well, number one, we, we bother with the Great Commission. We, we go fishing out of the Great Commission because we have first received grace. We've gotten grace. We've experienced it. Those of us who have responded to Jesus' grace initiative and, and stepped into that relationship with him, man, it is when we really and truly grasp and understand what it is that grace provides, what it is that grace does, what it is that grace rescued us from, it is an overwhelming sensation that there's something that has to just spill out of us. Let me ask you a question. How many of you in the room are married right now? You're married. Okay, great. Put your hands down. I want to ask you a follow-up question. Of those who are married, how many of you at one point were in love with your spouse? Let me just see a show of hands. It may be recently, it may be years ago, but you at one point, you were like just, I mean, head over heels, just stupid, drunk in love. You know what I'm talking about? Drunk in love. Don't miss that or, re or mistweet that, okay? 
Where, I'm talking about that kind of love where you just like, you just like, I, I can't believe she's paying attention to me. I mean, this is my, we're going to get married. We're going to just, it's going to be awesome. My breath is always going to be fresh. It's going to, we're just never going to fight. <laughs> Having kids is going to be so easy. This is awesome. And when you're like that, when it first happens, you're just like, have I told you about Julie? Have I, have I told you about, told you about my, my bride, the, the one that's, that I'm going to spend the rest of my life with? Have I told you? People are like, Mac, we get it. She's awesome. You're blessed. Can we please move on? I've heard the story. And that just kind of happens. But how much more so should that happen out of our awareness and our appreciation, our gratitude, our fascination with grace when we understand what God did for us in Jesus through Christ? It, it, ought, to, it ought to just just like bubble out of us. I don't know what happens. Somewhere along the way, as as Christ followers, we, we mistakenly assume that maturity in Christ equals seriousness. That in order to be mature, we must be serious. And the way that you know that I'm mature is that I'm very serious. This means that I'm deep. I'm deeper because I'm serious. And I can quote Greek root words to you until you throw up on your shoes. Because I'm mature. I'm deep. Well, I want to share with you a passage of Scripture from the book of Psalms. In, in the book of Psalms. And I know that, that grace, it, we usually associate grace with the New Testament, but never forget that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He is constant. It is the same God that straddles the Old Testament and the New Testament. He just interacts with his people differently between the two covenants but it's still God and, and everything that was true about God in the New Testament was true about him in the Old Testament look at what is written in Psalm 126 Psalms 120 Psalm 126 it says when the Lord brought back his exiles to Jerusalem it was like a dream we were filled with laughter and we sang for joy and the other nations said what amazing things the Lord has done for them. Yes, the Lord has done amazing things for us. What joy. Man, when you understand grace, when you really and truly own it and you experience it, you can't help but worship. You, you, you let it fly. It ought to be a great encouragement to all of us that the Bible never says make a beautiful noise to the Lord. Tell your neighbor right now, I want you to look at them and tell them sincerely, you can't sing. Now, follow that up quickly with this, and that's okay. Listen, I cannot sing. I can't sing. I love music. I can't sing. But I, I remember, I, I remember when Lake Hills Church was just getting off the ground and there were 38 of us. And we said there were 40 because we paid two custodians to clean up the elementary school afterwards. But there were, there were 38 of us, and, and people were so self-conscious. You could hear yourself sing, and so nobody sang. People were like, this is the day, this is the day that the Lord hath made, that the Lord hath made. I will rejoice, I will. I mean, it was painful, painful. 
And I'd, you know, I'd, I'd put on a brave face. I'd stand up to preach and go, man, that sounded so good. It was good to be in the house today. Lord, please deliver us. I mean, it was, it was painful. It's not uncommon for me to, to be sitting down here where I usually sit on Sunday morning and to be absolutely overcome when I, when I hear our church's worship bouncing off the rafters, when, when everybody gets into it, when we forget for a second that we're Austin cool and, and we just let it fly. Julie and I were at a uh, concert about a year ago, maybe not quite a year ago. We went to the Moody Theater at ACL downtown and we were seeing Sturgill Simpson, incredible songwriter, a little crazy, but great songwriter. And his guitar player was redonkulous. I mean, just shredding. Just and it was awesome. And I was, man, I was going, I, look. and Julie was like, Mac, look around the room. And everybody in the room had a smile on their face, but everybody was just Austin cool. What, you know what Billy Crystal called the, the white man overbite? <laughs> really feeling it. But when you and I gather for worship, we remember the God who brought us out of exile. Psalm 126 is in reference to the Babylonian captivity of the nation of Israel. In the 6th century before Christ, Israel was a captive nation. And God brought them back to Jerusalem. He brought them back to the homeland, to the place of their worship, to the place of their identity as his people. And when they got back there, their hearts were filled with laughter. Their songs burst forth out of their mouths and they let it fly. Because grace always results in worship, in letting it fly. You don't have to make a beautiful noise, you just got to make a joyful noise. You get to make a joyful noise. And there's something supernatural that happens when we celebrate, when our worship pours forth out of it, and we worship out of a recognition of the grace we have already received. And that's, that's the second reason that we bother. We bother because worship and evangelism collaborate. Worship and evangelism always collaborate. There's no worship without evangelism, and there's no evangelism without worship. They are partners in holiness. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Now, he was speaking to his disciples about his crucifixion physically, but I want you to notice the spiritual reality behind that physical proclamation when we lift up Jesus when we worship him when we praise him he does the work of drawing people to himself it's true outside of Sunday morning when we worship Jesus in our work and we carry ourselves with integrity we work hard we bless the people around us we represent Christ well and accurately, people are drawn to that. Let's be honest, that is definitely the exception rather than the rule in the world where you and I live. When you go to a high school, you hang out with 
friends. You, you attend parties or you don't attend parties, but you do either one as worship. There, there's something about that that Jesus draws people to himself through you. Your life becomes a magnet for Christ. Because worship and evangelism collaborate. And it's every bit as true outside as it is inside when we do gather together. Man, when we worship in here, it's different than Austin City Limits. It's different in this room than it is at the Saxon Pub or at Antone's. Great musicians, unbelievable talent. But when we lift up Jesus, when we worship God, whether we can sing or not, people are like, man, there's, there's something different about this. It's a, it's a different vibe. And because he is lifted up, he draws people to himself. And they're, they're attracted to him. They, they want to be a part of what we get to experience and what we're worshiping, what we're expressing. Worship and evangelism always collaborate. And, and, and I think it's important that we understand worship. When we gather together, we walk in the door with an expectation. An expectation that God's going to do something. Not because we deserve it or because we've just got it all figured out and we're deep. But because he's God. We expect him to fulfill his promise. He says, I will inhabit the praises of my people. Wherever God's name is lifted up in spirit and in truth, he's there. He's, he dwells in that praise and in that worship. And so we expect that. And, and because of our expectation, we, we enter into participation. We, we, we get after it together. Now, we always remember that we've got guests and, and first-time visitors, so we don't run up and down the aisles and handle snakes and kind of freak out for a whole host of reasons, but, but we participate. We, we let it fly. And we remember that our participation has to carry with it some consideration. Some consideration of the fact that this isn't just about me. It's not just about whenever I can feel like walking into the worship service, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get there on time because I don't want to be a distraction for what God's doing in anybody else's life or in the life of the church family at large. Or I don't want to be a distraction for what my kids are getting in LAC Kids because that ministry is designed specifically for them so that they begin experiencing what it means, what it feels like to be a part of the church with, with people their own age. From the earliest, earliest, when they're born into the nursery and that mom drops that baby off for the first time when they're seven years old, wherever it might be. Well, they're, they're still very, they're going to be fine. Well, but she was crying. Dad, that's what babies do. They cry. They're going to be just fine. This is the perfect place to help them work through their separation anxiety. It's universal. Every kid in the world goes through it. Well, but my middle schooler says he really likes the service. I get that, but just know you're being played. <laughs> they need to be a part of their age group ministry on Wednesday night and on Sunday morning. Because the greatest gift we will ever give our kids is participation in the only organization that will carry them their whole lives. It's the only one, the church. 
It's not a travel sports team, no matter how gifted they are. It's not anything else. It is the church. It's not another parachurch ministry. It is the church where our kids discover what it means to be the body of Christ. And that happens as worship and evangelism collaborate. But that's not all. We also bother because life is hard and God is good. Because life is hard and God is good. And the people in our world, in our spheres of influence, desperately need to know that. In Matthew 11, Jesus said, Come to me, all of you, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. You will find rest for your souls. On that first trip to Andros in the Bahamas, I met a man, I didn't fish with him, but I met a man who, even today, though he has since passed away, is a legend in Bahamas bone fishing history. I met him, and Mr. Russell was somebody that every guide in the Bahamas knew. And they knew about him. I think we have a picture of Mr. Russell. That's him. That's just a Bahamas sunrise. No big deal. But Mr. Russell had been fishing those waters since he was a boy. He knew bonefish inside and out. He wouldn't fish for any other species. Now you'll notice there Mr. Mr. Russell is not wearing any sunglasses. He didn't put them on later in the day. He would fish every single day in the blazing, beaming Bahamian sun with no sunglasses. Try that the next time you go by the pool. But he had a sixth sense for bonefish. He could put you on fish. He could see fish at 80 feet. You didn't even know were there. He was an amazing guide. I showed you his picture because... Every single one of us who is a follower of Jesus is called to be a guide. We are all called to point people toward the rest for their souls that is found only in Jesus. We know where the answer lies. We, we know who's got rest for their souls. We can see rest for their souls at 80 and 90 feet when they don't even know it's out there. You and I get to be the guide. We get to be the one who says, hey, let, let me show you where rest for your soul is because I understand life's hard and God is good fourth reason we bother is because heaven and hell are real heaven and hell are real Romans chapter 6 the Bible says for the wages of sin that the the compensation the payback of sin is death but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ eternal life death heaven 
and hell are real. And they're forever. And so the people that we say we care about need to know that. Why bother? Because heaven and hell are real. There, there's one more reason why we bother. And, I, and I, <clears throat> I saved it for the last. Because the reality is this could have been just the whole sermon by itself. Why bother? Because Jesus said so. <laughs> I mean, when it's all said and done, if I'm a follower of Christ, if I've committed my life to him, if I've taken and received the free gift of salvation, that amazing grace, I, I know how good he is. Whatever he tells me, I ought to do it. Now, he said in Matthew 28, go and make disciples. But right before he said that, he said something else. And it's, it's, I think it's fascinating that the Bible, under God's leadership and God's authority, makes this statement. Look at what it says in Matthew 28, 16 and 17. It says, then the 11 disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some of them doubted. I love that that's in the Bible. How many of you have ever had doubts about the Christian faith? Let me just see a show of hands. If you've ever had a doubt, some of you think, I don't know if I can raise my hand. It's okay. You can't have faith without doubt. They go hand in glove. And even the 11 here, Judas was no longer a part of the team. He, he was gone. He hadn't been replaced yet. So the 11 They've walked with Jesus. They've seen him do the miracles. Peter, James, and John have had a front row seat for some that the rest of the 12 never saw. And even those 11 who saw him bodily resurrected after they saw him bodily crucified, they still doubted. But they worshipped him. They worshipped him. They recognized his authority. Jesus came and told his disciples in verse 18, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. All authority. You see, the reality is Jesus is in charge. The only question is whether or not you and I are going to recognize his authority. Unless we're, are we going to recognize that reality? And it's that reality that sets up the Great Commission. Remember, the Great Commission began with, therefore, go and make disciples. Therefore, because I, Jesus has been given all authority, now because of that fact, you go. You go. Now, the word go is an okay translation of Jesus' original words. We know archaeologically and historically that Jesus spoke in Aramaic, it was recorded in Greek, and God supernaturally protected the translation of that and, and the transmission of it to you and me. But that, that word go and make disciples, in the original language, it would be better translated as you are going. It, it's, a, it's a progressive verb. It's like a progressive dinner party. As you're going. Just as you're going. As you're going to work this week. Make disciples. As you're going to school, 
Make disciples. As you're going to lunch with your family that you got in a fight with on the way to church today, make disciples. As you're going to a UT basketball game, as you're going, as you're going, make disciples. That's our job. And, and it's not just for preachers. It's not just for pastors or or religious types. That's for everybody who's been given and received the gift of grace. Billy and Keely Cano are members of our church. A couple of years ago, Billy shared his story of faith in our Easter services. But yesterday, Billy posted a video to Facebook that we didn't even know anything about. But I love it when God gives a little last-minute help to the preacher on Saturday. Check this out. their son Chavi. Now, let's be honest. Chavi has a little cute factor that I don't I don't have the advantage of. Most of us don't. But bigger than his cuteness factor is his courage factor. Chavi bothered. It's worth it to a child to invite people to discover the life that is truly life. And so this morning as a church, we're going to conclude a little differently than we normally do. I want to invite everybody, if you will, bow your heads. And together we're going to pray for our church, for our Easter services, that God will use us as we lift up Jesus to draw people to him. Right now, God's bringing people to your mind, to your heart that you know, who don't yet know how extravagantly he loves them. Maybe today you've been reminded of the extravagance of his grace, 
And so you want to bother this week. Not bother your friends. You're giving your friends the gift that changes a life. You're giving them an opportunity to enter into the life that is truly life. So let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we worship you this morning and we lift you up because you deserve it. God, you're worthy of our praise and we need to worship you. Father, right now, I ask that you would move as only you can in each of our lives, God, in each of our hearts. Give us the courage of a child to step outside of our comfort zones, to, to bother enough to share your extravagant love with the people you've placed in our lives. God, people we work with. Some we may even live with. That waiter who brings us food. Friends in our lives we go to school with. God, help us to see them as you see them. We ask this prayer in the name of Jesus who makes it possible. And everybody said, amen.